0: So a couple of days ago, we celebrated the absolute wonder of God the Son coming into this world, taking on human flesh so that we could be redeemed from the curse of sin. And so we commonly call Christmas it is this amazing celebration. It was great to worship with you a couple of days ago on Christmas Eve and to be here Together This morning as we're coming out of Christmas and looking forward to the end of 2020 and this whole holiday season, it is a joy to be able to gather together and to focus our minds on the end of the Christmas story out of Luke chapter 2. So we left off on verse 20. So again, Luke 2 verse 20. 20 is the end of what you would normally call the Christmas story. But verse 21 continues, like it doesn't end there. So let's read the very next verse. So verse 20, again from Luke 2, ends with the shepherds return, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen as was told unto them. So they they see the birth of Jesus and they leave praising and glorifying God. Verse 21, at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So it's fitting that we would look at the very next verse, that's the Christmas story on the Sunday after Christmas, because this next section in Luke 2 describes the events that took place right after his birth. And everything that we're going to see here in this text was was described in the Torah, in the Old Testament. So Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day, and then we'll see in a minute about his mother going to be purified. All of this was in the Old Testament. And so you have Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus when he's 40 days old. So at the 40th day, they take him up to Jerusalem. And by the way, it says up because it's on a mountain. And so you never go down, you always go up to Jerusalem. And so it always says in the text, and so they went up to Jerusalem and they went up and and they went to the temple to present Jesus. Now, this text right here, as we'll see this morning, is a really good example of why it's so important for us to read the Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament. A lot of believers don't. They don't study the Old Testament. And so then they go straight to the New Testament and then it's deficient and they don't fully understand. And it's like reading the Bible with 2D black and whites versus 3D full color. And so reading the Bible in the Old Testament will help you better understand what's happening in the New Testament. So this is an example where if you've never read the book of Leviticus or Exodus, you're like, I have never gone through Leviticus. I've tried, Pastor. I can't get through it if you've If you have not read leviticus then this this text here doesn't make much sense, and if you haven't read Exodus again, it doesn't fully make sense and so I'll review part of that here this morning so that we can get a full picture because once once we know the context of what's happening here, what happens is the meaning explodes off the page and it causes a chain reaction of explosion in your heart where you will just have this amazing awe and wonder and love for Jesus. Because what we need today as we're closing 2020 is we need to have our eyes of faith opened. We need to see clearly and not be blinded by the enemy or blinded by our own pride or blinded by our own sinful desires or blinded by our busy schedules or blinded by our affairs or blinded by you fill in the blank. We need to see Jesus as we just sung. I see your face and you're beautiful. So let's pray and ask his spirit to be heavy on us. We would sense his presence and that he would open our eyes, that we would see the glory of Jesus in this text. Oh God, this morning we ask that you would open our eyes. That we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of Our faith. Just like Peter, when he got out of the boat, did the supernatural, he walked on the water when he had his eyes fixed on you, Jesus. But when Peter took his eyes off of you and looked and saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. And some of us here are sinking. And we're sinking because we have taken our eyes off of you, Jesus. I pray that we would fix our eyes on you. That we would see more beauty in you than what this world has to offer. That we would see more glory, more hope, more joy, more purpose in you than anything under the sun that you have created. We're just desperate for you. We're hungry for you. Speak to us. And we encounter you today, Jesus. And we leave this place, red-hot worshipers, on fire for you. And we ask it for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title for this morning, as you have already deduced, is we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. But before we can even really begin to dive into Luke 2, I want to give you a little bit of context here. So verse 21 that we just read, it says that, and his father and mother, that they named him Jesus. That is not a throwaway verse. This is important. Verse 21, he was called Jesus. That name is significant. So the name Jesus in English is... English transliteration of the Greek, Yesus. And so that's where you get Jesus, Jesus. It comes from the Greek, Yesus. But, but that word, Yesus, in the Greek is the equivalent of a Hebrew word called Yeshua. So Yeshua is the name of Jesus. It's the same name, and Yeshua in the Hebrew means the Lord saves, or Yahweh Saves. That's what the word Jesus means. So in the Old Testament, when you see the word salvation, and you will see it over and over and over and over, every time that you see the word salvation, that word is Yeshua. And so I'll give you a few examples. So Exodus 14, verse 13, when God is speaking and Moses is about to deliver his people from slavery. And Moses said to the people, when when the enemy is coming and there is a body of water in front of them and all hope seems lost, he tells them, fear not, stand firm and see the Yeshua of the Lord. See the salvation of the Lord for he will work for you today. See his Yeshua, see his salvation. Psalm 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. That word there is Yeshua, belongs to the Lord. First Chronicles 16 verses 23 through 24, sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of his salvation day to day, tell of his Yeshua from day to day. As you read the Old Testament, what you find over and over and over is the name of Jesus is being whispered. If you, will, if you will hear it, you'll see that the Old Testament is declaring he is coming. Jesus is Yeshua, he is salvation. Jesus didn't point us to salvation. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is salvation. He is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. So it's the good news of Jesus. And God wants you to see the truth of who Jesus is. Is It's all about Jesus, about him being magnified and us being in awe of him and living our lives of worship before him. And this text is just saying, fix your eyes and see Jesus and we'll see what. Let me give you four truths, four specific truths. Just a heads up. This is not going to be a short sermon, but they usually aren't. And the last two are towards the end. They're a lot briefer. So don't panic when it's 40 minutes and you're like, oh no, he's only through two points. Like, relax, it's going to be okay. You won't miss lunch, I promise. But there are four specific truths that God wants you to see. Fix your eyes on who Jesus is. And the first one is see what? See, fix your eyes on how Jesus has obeyed and fulfilled the law. And so we need to see with our eyes of faith, our eyes of our hearts, see, fix our eyes on this Jesus who has obeyed and fulfilled the law. So, next verse, we just read verse 21, his name is Jesus, he is salvation. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to, see again, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So whenever I am trying to share a truth from the word, I want it to be very clear. Like we at Renewal practice called expositional preaching where we are trying to expose or bring the truth to light from the text. And so the main idea of a sermon should be the main idea of the text. And any points that you hear a pastor make ought to be points that you can clearly see for yourself in the text. And so what you see here is Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the law, all three verses over and over and over. It says that according to the law. So, verse 22, let's start there. It says, When time came for their that purification, that's a big word, purification according to the law of Moses. You're like, Well, what is that? What is this purification? Again, if you haven't read Leviticus, then you won't know what that's talking about. This section here on purification comes from Leviticus chapter 12. And it's describing the purification for a woman. After she gives birth, which is why she went six weeks or 40 days later. It's a common window. Women and husbands might know this, but it's kind of a significant time. After after six weeks, a woman becomes to be a, a, a little bit more normal and feel herself a bit more after she's given birth. But there's far more than just health things going on here. And so hold that thought. At the 40-day mark, they take Jesus after she gave birth up to the temple. Now, in Leviticus chapter 12, that's actually in the middle of a larger section, Leviticus 11 through 15. That whole section in Leviticus, those five chapters, describe what is clean and what is unclean. So that's the language of Leviticus 11 through 15. It describes animals, that are clean or unclean, and animals that they are not allowed to eat, that God says these are unclean. And then he describes people that can become unclean. For example, if they get a skin disorder or leprosy, then they're considered to be unclean. A woman was described as unclean during her menstrual cycle. You're like, oh, we're talking about that today. Yes, we are. And it's going to get better because you know what? In Leviticus 15, it describes men who have a semen discharge are unclean. Now we're getting real and you're like, oh, half our church is gone for Christmas. And you're talking about discharges of bodily fluid. Yes, we are because it's in the Bible. Leviticus 15 describes that and also describes in this section how when a woman gives birth, she is considered to be unclean. So it describes this. And and you're thinking, okay, but these are natural things like bodily fluid discharges and giving birth and getting a rash, like. The, and what we eat, like why, what's clean or unclean? Explain this to me. So here's the way this works. In the Bible, when it describes clean versus unclean, we have to go back further than Leviticus. You have to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. When God created the world, he originally made it good and holy and whole. So the word there is shalom or peace. It refers to wholeness. So the world was good and holy as God originally intended, and it was whole. So the word clean in the Bible describes when when someone or something, because objects as well can be clean or unclean. And so when someone or something is in its original good condition, As God created it, then it is clean. And so again, just so that we're all on the same page, taking notes, clean refers to when someone or something is in its original state of how it was created, how God intended for it to be. But the problem is that if you read in Genesis chapter 3, it describes the fall. It describes sin and corruption and how that came into the world. And so now it's unclean. People and things are considered to be unclean. And so think of it this way. Anything that isn't as God originally intended for it to be misses the mark. And another word for sin is missing the mark. That's that's a definition for sin, to miss the mark of holiness, to miss the mark of God's glory to miss God's mark of his original good design. So when something is unclean, it's missing the mark and therefore needs to be brought back or restored to its original intent or to be cleaned because it's now unclean. It's no longer as God originally designed it. And anything or anyone that is unclean is not allowed to enter into the presence of God who is holy and clean. Nothing unclean can enter into God's presence, only that which is perfectly clean and holy. So unclean objects or unclean people could go through a process called purification. And so in Leviticus it describes this process where a person that becomes unclean could be restored, could be cleaned. It always involved a waiting time. it involved like this ritual like ceremonial washing like with water. it also involved sacrifices like burnt offerings to show that there was a payment for that being unclean. there was a payment necessary, to pay for that sin. And so there was an animal that would die in the place of that person. So this is all about God requiring a payment for sin because he is holy. And what he created originally good and clean has become unclean. So the Old Testament law, not just in Leviticus, but all of it as a whole, it shows that God is holy, and the law reveals the character of God. It reveals his holy standard. And so therefore, his people who are called out of the world are called to be consecrated. That's another big word. So consecrated means to just be set apart, to be made holy, to be cleaned. So to be consecrated means to be set apart and holy for God. Because his people are meant to be holy because God is holy. And God's people were meant to be different from the nations. God's people are meant to be different from those who don't know God. We're supposed to live different and reflect the holy character of God, reflect his glory. And so the law reveals what it looks like to live holy Because God is holy. But I want you to just for a moment, this is very hard for us, 21st century, I get it. But just try to picture life for an ancient Israelite. When the law was first given, they were living in tents. They were nomads living in the desert, setting up and tearing down. We we know about setting up and tearing down. But for them, it wasn't just a place of worship. It was their homes. They They were living in tents, okay? Picture that as best you can in the desert. And you can become unclean by touching a dead body. You're like, well, ugh, I won't touch a dead body. Yeah, but what if you had to bury a loved one? And that was happening in the wilderness. That was a good thing to do, to bury a loved one. And yet, touching a dead body would make you unclean. Eating the wrong kind of food would make you unclean clean. Having a skin disorder made you unclean. Having mold or mildew in your house made it unclean. Being on your period made you unclean. H- giving birth made you unclean. If you were a guy having a semen discharge made you unclean. Can you begin to think how frustrating it would be and the impossible standard and you would realize, Ah, oh, I just live unclean. It's impossible. It's impossible to stay clean. Exactly. That's right. Now you know the point of the law to show sinners the effects of sin. And we're not clean. And this is designed. For the Israelite to recognize, I can't. In my own power, I cannot clean myself. I can't stop my sin. I can't change my heart. The point of the law was to reveal our sinfulness, our sinful hearts, and show that we cannot obey. To expose our weakness and our sinful nature. But it continues in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. You're like, what is that talking about? Now, this is from Exodus 13, describing in the law. Now, here's a big word for you, all right? This is the law of the primogenitor. You're like what? Say that again? It's the law of the, in Spanish, but but in English, it's primogenitor. It's two words. They're Latin. It's not that hard. I promise. Primo refers to like prime or first, like prime rib. That's that's good, right? So prime means first, the best. And so primo refers to the word first, and then genitor. The the, in the Latin it was. Hene, or Henne Gene, if you will. And so we get the word gene from that. But other words too, like your progeny is what? Your children that you give birth to. So in your line is your progeny. The word genital is what you use to procreate. And so the word, the word there refers to giving birth. So first birth, primogenitor, the firstborn. That's what the word means. So the law of the primogeniture refers to the firstborn, as it says here, the first to open the womb. And so the firstborn son from a woman would have the right to inherit headship of the family. They were primal. They were prime. They had first dibs. So the firstborn son in Hebrew culture, was very important. See, they're not like us. Like in the Western world, man, our success is defined by our accomplishments, our business, or our own, I don't know, intelligence, or our own successes. And so in the Western world, we tend to define success on an individual's basis. But in the Hebrew mindset, success was not tied to your individual accomplishments. Success was defined by the clan, by the family. It was way more communal than we are in America today. And so success was understood, was measured by success of the family. So all of a man's hopes and dreams for his family was not in his 401K. His hopes and dreams were tied to his firstborn son who would carry on the family lineage, who would inherit a double portion of the estate to carry on the legacy and this communal glory of being a family. And so I know we're thinking, man, this feels so strange to Americans today. But that is how they thought. And this is what you see in the Bible. This is the culture that we're, we're dealing with here. The firstborn son. So in Exodus 13, verses 2 and also in 12, it's describing, and it's quoted here in verse 23 in Luke 2, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Some translations have the word consecrated in there because that's what consecrated means, to be set apart as holy To the Lord. So think of it this way that firstborn son represented the entire family. He was the representative of that family. And this was revealed in Exodus, which was right before they were set free from slavery in Egypt, set free from their bondage. And so you remember that they had to kill a lamb and then put the blood over the doorpost. So that the firstborn son, the primogenitor, would not die. Remember, all the family's hopes and future is tied to that firstborn son. And so God said, this firstborn son represents the family. And so he would have to die to represent that family. And so the firstborn son would have to die to represent the family's sins. But God said, we can redeem. So the word redemption comes from here. What, what does redemption mean? Redemption is the price paid to liberate a slave from freedom. So the firstborn son could be redeemed. A lamb could die in the place of that firstborn son. And that was continued. Where a sacrifice was offered whenever a firstborn son came into the world, the family would go up to Jerusalem on that 40th day and would offer, if they had more resources, like an ox, but in this case, Mary and Joseph were poor. So they offered a couple of pigeons. All of this is showing how Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the law. Let me tie all of this together and help you make sense of this. The law reveals how we are unclean and cannot clean ourselves. The law reveals that we are sinful and that we deserve to die. The law is revealing that our hearts are corrupted and sinful and that we're enslaved and that we cannot change our hearts The whole point of Jesus in this text, what you're seeing, is that Jesus is the ultimate firstborn son. He is the firstborn. He is the ultimate primogenitor. He is prime. He is supreme. He is the first, the alpha and omega, the first and the last. And so he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is, He is both. He is the firstborn son and He is the Lamb who was ransomed, who paid the price, who died so that we can be set free from our sin. And Jesus is the high priest who purifies us with His own blood that was poured out on the cross and that sprinkled upon the mercy seat. It is Jesus who is The sacrifice and the priest who does the purification so that we can be clean. Because the law reveals that we can't be clean. That's the whole point. We're given new hearts. We're given a new nature. We're we're given a power through his spirit so that we can obey through the work of Jesus, through the power of his spirit. So we don't obey the law in order to earn salvation. If that were the case, no one could be saved. We don't earn. We don't obey the law so that we can earn salvation. It's the opposite. We receive salvation, which gives us new hearts, which enables us, empowers us, gives us a the desire they want to obey. And so due to Jesus, we can be consecrated, set apart as holy for God and worship him and display his glory. And so when you read the law in the Old Testament, it should not freak you out. Don't avoid Leviticus. Don't don't avoid Exodus. Don't, Don't avoid the Old Testament. Read it. Be in awe of the one who fulfilled it completely and gives us the strength to obey and use the law according to its purpose. And so Jesus, we fix our eyes on Jesus who fulfilled, who obeyed the law. Number two, fix our eyes on Jesus who brings consolation. He brings consolation. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had, been, had seen the Lord's Christ. So you hear that? The Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen, with his own eyes, seen the Lord's Messiah. He was an older man who loved and trusted God, He was in the temple. He was waiting for the consolation, it says, of Israel. Now, the word consolation means comfort. That's what that word means. So to console someone is to comfort them. And so consolation means to bring consoling or to comfort. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and he recognized that Jesus is Messiah, and his language here sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 61. Let me read that to you, just a couple of verses. This is 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This is talking about Jesus how he's going to come, he's anointed, bring good news, heal the blind, release the captives from their slavery and he's going to comfort, bring consolation to those who more and he is indeed near to the brokenhearted this is all about jesus who was coming to bring us comfort and by the way in case you are curious luke 2:25 or mentions consolation if you look in the gospel of john 14 verse 26 jesus says the holy spirit he describes him as the helper or comforter guess what word that is the exact same word that Simeon used the word is parakletos in the in the original the Greek. It refers to comfort, and so in the Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the helper. It's the same word of of Jesus in Luke two when he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the comfort, the helper of God's people, and so this this shows us that the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus are one and. The same. And this is what Simeon cries out as inspired by the Spirit when he sees Jesus. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, there it is again, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The consolation of God is rooted in the sovereign purposes of God. He is in complete control of everything, of human history, control of your life, of this church. He is sovereignly in complete control of Everything of every single detail, he's in control. God is moving history to bring us the Messiah. And this constellation is also rooted in the unbreakable promises of God. He Simmons says, according to your word. And this constellation is also rooted in the finished work of. Jesus, seeing Jesus is seeing God's salvation. He says, my eyes have seen, that I have seen your salvation. So he is holding the infants, the 40-day-old Jesus. So he's seeing Jesus. And what does he say? I am seeing your salvation. I am seeing the Messiah. So this, this to me is an important point to Central Texas, where there's a whole lot of churchianity. And there's a whole lot of religiosity and people that, quote, go to church, which you can't even do that. Church is the people, but whatever. And yet don't actually love Jesus. Um, I mean, I want to say this gently, but I'm not good at gentle, so I, I guess I just say it. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to go to heaven, but you don't have a passion for Jesus right now, I think you're going to be bored. Like, you're not going to like heaven. Why do you want to go to heaven if you don't actually love Jesus? Because the whole point of heaven is being in the presence of Jesus. The point of heaven is worshiping Jesus. Enjoying Jesus. It's sitting at the feet of Jesus, is holding Jesus, hearing his words, just reveling in him. It's all about Jesus. Seeing his salvation is seeing Jesus. He is the point. And so, if what you want is religion, if what you want is a get out of hell free card or fire insurance, You just have to ask yourself the question, On do you know Jesus? Because he is the point. It's all about him and his glory. Now, remember the context here from Luke 2. The context is they're going to the temple for the purification of Mary after she's given birth to fulfill Levitical law. So God revealed that women on their monthly cycle as well as when they give birth are unclean. And you're wondering, well, why? Why Why is it that a woman on her monthly flow is unclean? And why is giving birth considered to be unclean? Why were men unclean when they discharge their bodily fluids? Like, why is that unclean? Why would it be purified from that in the Old Testament law? You know, and I've heard a lot of sermons on this, and maybe you have too or read about this, and usually they make me really angry. Like they just like fire making me just so mad because you'll hear this language on, well, and I've even looked up like secular Jewish stuff and it's all the same bunk. They say, well, The Old Testament purification laws were about good hygiene. And you see, they didn't have good science back then. Like, they didn't have the internet, so they didn't know. They they couldn't Google it. So, like, they didn't know that semen can carry diseases. And they didn't know about how you can transmit different, you know, infections. And, And so God was preserving the health of his people by telling them how to properly wash clothing and and be careful with bodily fluids. And so God was just giving them some insight long before science could discover and affirm that this is just really good practice. Um, Well, let me just say that, yes, it's true. Like, let's not deny that, that, yes, it is good hygiene, all right? So everything in Leviticus, if you read it, actually is good hygiene. But anyone who's actually read the Bible, like let's just think. You've been here for a while, then. I think I hope you know this. Um, The Bible is not primarily concerned with your hygiene at all, or your physical appearance. It's not. It's not. If God revealed this in his law, these Old Testament purification laws, and if the only point, only purpose is for good hygiene, then I'm out because that is not consistent with who God is. And I worship a God who is consistent in his word. And it's always about the heart. It's always about your soul and worshiping him and delighting in his glory and living for the praise of his name. And so if if that's the case, then the Old Testament purification laws have to have more than just good hygiene. Let me give you some thoughts on why this is so special. Because this is remarkably special. Your reproductive system fundamentally is good. Fundamentally, at its essence, it's Holy. And and the fact that it is painful, we know why. Genesis 3 tells us why it's painful and uncomfortable because of the fall. Sin has corrupted everything in this world, it has corrupted, including the way women can reproduce. And yet, even though there is fall and there is corruption and there is discomfort and annoyance, the reality is that the fall has not taken away the beauty and the glory of how women are designed to reflect the image of God. And it is not men who bring life. It is women who bring life. It is a woman's joy and privilege and honor to reflect the stunning glory of God and being the one of the two sexes that can actually bring forth life. And that is what God does. God brings forth life. And so when a woman gives birth, she is displaying the glory of God in ways that men don't have the privilege. It is a beautiful honor to be the one of the two that gets to bring life the way God does. And yet it is corrupted because of the fall. And so what God originally made good is tainted. And so this menstrual cycle that was not originally meant to be painful now is. And so a discharge of blood is a a picture of death because life is in the blood this is a biblical principle that life is in the blood that's in leviticus as well and so this discharge of blood is a symbol of this loss of blood is a symbol of a loss of life loss of vitality so it's a symbol of what happens because of sin because of Corruption. Now, I know you say Matthew, but there's some science. I I know there's a science. I'm talking about the biblical, theological, spiritual symbol and significance of this and why it's declared unclean in the Bible. So, women, your bodies are literally preaching the gospel. When you have your flow, what you're, what you're seeing is that your body is corrupted by sin, but it's also preaching that there is hope because that is why Jesus came, is to redeem and to restore everything, to restore everything, to bring back peace, to put everything as it once was originally to make it good and whole as God designed where childbirth is not painful. And so this discharge of blood and discharge of semen in the Bible are just described as symbols of being unclean. They're not evil. They're not sinful. It's a symbol. It's symbolic of being unclean. And so it just reminds us that men and women are in desperate need of a Savior of a redeemer who can make us clean and can restore us holistically, including our bodies, back to its original design. And so, the Old Testament purification rituals of unclean and the process to be made clean; these rituals point backwards to something. They point backwards to the fall in Genesis three, but they also point forward to the coming of Jesus. It points forward to when all things will be made new and he's going to restore everything. And Jesus poured out his blood and died and became unclean. So that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us. He makes all things right because he obeyed and fulfilled the law and second, because he brings consolation because of his work on the cross. So there is no shame with being a human being with bodily discharges. It's the reality of our existence in this earth, but it's a reminder that one day, He's going to come and make all things new. It was about faith. The Old Testament rituals were, were designed, Old Testament law as a whole, and also the purification rituals were designed to drive us forward to faith in Messiah, which is where we're at as we finish off the verses. Verse 33 And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And his sword will pierce through his own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Have you ever noticed talking about Jesus is controversial? Have you ever noticed how it, it causes conflict or, or arguments? Huh, interesting. It's almost as though God knew that was going to happen. And it was foretold when, when Jesus was just an infant. The Bible is giving us a heads up. Now, some people are going to reject Jesus, but others will receive him. A rise and the fall. Some will rise in faith and some will fall because they will reject him. But so here's the point, though. This is the third truth I want you to see here. Fix your eyes on this Jesus who demands a response. He demands a response. And so we don't have the option to say, oh, whatever, and then just go about your life like nothing happened. You see, this this news of Jesus who obeyed and fulfilled the law in our place and who brings comfort, Consolation is not a message that we can just blow off and go about living like nothing happened. Like this demands a response. And so the question for us today is, where are you at? Are you surrendered to Jesus? Or are you just doing the playing church thing, but it's not real to you? He demands a response. And lastly, seeing the glory of Jesus, fixing your eyes on him, results in worship. That's, that's what happens. We worship. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. That means she was old. Having lived with her husband seven years, From when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and and speak of him who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and favor of God was upon him. When Anna sees the Messiah, she responds with worship, with praise and, and gratitude to God. She was when for the redemption. There's that word again, this being set free from slavery. Paying the price to be set free. So when you see redemption, that means the price has to be paid. And she knew that. And so she was praising God for it. For him coming to rescue us from our slavery. And so she sees Jesus and her response is worship. So we fix her eyes. So as you wrap up today, um, let's just be honest. 2020 was maybe not the highlight of your life. Um. For me, if there's one thing that I learned in 2020 is that we really have no idea what's going to happen. Like if you would have asked me before I left to go see family for spring break, that we would not gather for three months and that we would lose our venue and that we would be in a hotel for a few months and that God would then literally, almost exactly double the number of members that we've had and that we would see lives transformed and the church further energized and God's glory displayed. Like, you think I could have ever expected that to happen, like foreseen that? There, We just don't know what God is going to do. And so on this last Sunday of 2020, As, as we're saying goodbye, maybe think good riddance, but I just say farewell to 2020. And as we stand on this precipice of this new year, man, I'm just really excited. I I can't speak for you, but I was right there, Christmas Eve, worshiping in this room three nights ago with, with my faith family. And as I was just had my hands raised, I was just worshiping. It was amazing. And I just had this—the this sense, Spirit just put this word on my on my heart. It just impressed on my soul, and it was almost audible. It was crazy. It was awesome. This is word: Your best days are ahead. Renewal's best days are ahead. They're not behind us. Look, we're a year and a half in, but God's at work. He's at work changing lives. And he will continue to change lives and we will continue to radiate his glory if we keep our eyes fixed on this Jesus. And whatever 2021 brings, it's okay because we know God's got this. It really is okay and we're not worried because he is sovereign. Because our eyes are fixed on this Jesus who fulfilled the law on our behalf, who brings his consolation, who demands a response. But man, the results when we, when we see his glory is we worship.